0: pushkin
1: the most innovative companies are going further with t-mobile for business the pga of america is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with ai coaching tools and 5g connected cameras aaa is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics a room upgrade don't wait to make smart financial decisions compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com reminder credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply nerd wallet
2: finance smarter what if ai could help your business deliver mission critical outcomes with speed with ibm consulting your business can design build and scale trusted AI using Watson X. And modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create.
3: It wasn't until I started to hit my 40s, I started taking pressure off myself and I started becoming more and more comfortable just being me. But in the early going, I mean, I went from caveman to hunchback to beast to whatever. I mean, there, there, was, an, there was a lot of it. And I became known for it and became, you know, the only time I was considered for work was if you covered this shit up and turned it into something else. And the interesting poetic thing about that is that I needed it. I needed to have a, sh- a, a, a layer of artificial goop between me and the camera. If I didn't have that mask, I was very self-conscious. And and how cool is it that I got a chance to be an actor under those circumstances, because those are the only ways that I was comfortable enough to be an actor.
0: That was Ron Perlman. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Show. This is Talk Easy. Uh, If this is your first time, uh, thank you for being here. If you have been here before, welcome back. Uh, I want to say at the top a big thank you to all those who have donated to the show in the last couple of weeks. Uh, We are a non for profit, independently run, and operated program, which is really just a long way of saying that uh, everyone who works on this show, and there are uh, a handful of people are doing so because they like to do it and are not getting paid, but because they believe the thing we're doing every week uh, means something. So uh, if this show has meant something to you in uh, the last few weeks, in the last few years since we started, you can donate to the show at talkeasypod.com slash donate. We're on PayPal and Venmo at talkeasypod. And uh, if you cannot make a financial contribution, which I know, many cannot. It is a hard time right now. Just sharing the show on social media really does help us out. Anyway, um, now that I got through all of that, uh, thank you again for those who have contributed. Today on the show is Ron Perlman. Uh, Ron is someone who is actively political on social media and politics, despite um, our engineer Tim wanting me to talk more about it, is something I have avoided. But since the debates happened uh, this past week, we opened the show talking about, I don't know, general reactions about the Democrats coming in to uh, fight Donald Trump. And and, and Ron Perlman, um, I want to give credit to him at the top. There are many actors who have a huge platform, and very few really use that platform to support and promote democracy, and I know that sounds simple but he has been fighting this fight for a long time, and uh, he's also been fighting the fight of just middle dramatic uh, serious cinema. Although he is known for the Hellboy uh, series and the Blade films and, you know, started out in Beauty and the Beast, in recent years he has been someone who is supporting and making independent films. If you're familiar with the market of independent films, you know that there's really not a market. So, I want to thank him for coming on. Uh, It was a real pleasure to sit down with him and uh, go through, I think, some very important moments in his life and career. And uh, we hit on really the moments that have defined him and that have made him both the man and the actor that he is today. So uh, without further ado, here is the one and only Ron Perlman. twenty eighth, uh, in the afternoon. Yesterday, I assumed you watched uh the debate.
3: I watched that one and the one uh that preceded it.
0: Yeah, as did I. What do you make of it? How are you feeling?
3: I feel um like there's some real deal stuff going on there and there's just some a lot of bullshit, a lot of you know, a lot of people um needing to get noticed and uh looking more and more pathetic <laughs> with every flagrant attempt that they make but it was nice to see you know uh, how quickly the field is going to narrow because mm-hmm. i think that if a lot of these people had any fucking brains at all they just start dropping out like you know
0: the people at the uh, at the outer rim of the debate you just know that there's no chance they have no chance and i think they know it mm-hmm. but they're clearly selling a product or themselves mm-hmm. so they have every incentive to stay there because it's good publicity but the people at the end, I was like, man.
3: Yeah, you know. Also, you know that a lot of them are running just to, you know, enhance their brand. Uh, end up with a cabinet position, mm-hmm. maybe vice president material. But you know, which there's a sort of a um, a cynicism to that that uh, we don't have time for. No, in the Democratic Party right now.
0: I know you're a Kamala Harris fan, and we, we're not going to talk about politics very much. But I feel like. It's on everyone's mind right now after the last two days. Uh, What did you make of her last night?
3: I thought she was Kamala. You know, I thought that um, she really galvanizes a great deal of... uh, uh, There's an energy force around her, which she usually rises to. And Mm -hmm. she. I thought she managed to rise to... I'd give her an 85 in terms of uh, her potential, this aura that surrounds her, which is why I'm a fan of hers on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel as though we need somebody who is, um will not tolerate bullshit. That's her. A touch of magic that could call people to their better angels.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a nice way of putting it.
3: I think she has those things. But what she has in spades is, you know, the ability to wipe up the fucking floor with Donald Trump. Yeah. And she will once she's the nominee. I'm pretty sure that's going to be her. You saw aspects of why Joe Biden is the front runner, but you also saw aspects why he's never won an election before. Mm-hmm. We, we, we found ourselves in a time where there's no room for any old guard. We need somebody that's going to shake shit up and be an antidote for, you know, what a lot of us have, have identified as intolerable in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, the damage that's been done to all the things that make the country great, all the things that make the democracy great, you know. Um, and we're not always great, but the aspirations that we have are, and this guy has shit on all of them, and needs to be, he needs to be put away. He needs to. He needs to pay for his sins.
0: Do you think there's any chance that he will serve any amount of time?
3: I think that the biggest mistake he ever made was running for president. He 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 has done things in the light of day that need to be answered for. Treason is a big deal. Um, I'll say this one thing: Jimmy Carter came out and said he was never president. He didn't win anything. And I've been tweeting this for two, over two years now because d- all, during this whole impeachment discussion, I've been the lone voice that I could see on Twitter because I follow a lot of really cool people mm-hmm. who have said, you don't impeach somebody who never rose to the, to the office. He's not president. He was installed. He didn't win any election what you do with a person like that is you annul the two years that they spent packing the courts, you know, making the rich richer, bringing back Nazism and racism and stuff. You annul that as Mm -hmm. if it never happened because it happened illegitimately. And Jimmy Carter came out today, and and, and the follow-up question from the reporter was, are you saying he's illegitimate? And Carter's response was, well, since I can't retract what I just said, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> First major public figure who has finally affirmed what my position has been all along is that he didn't win anything. He didn't win Wisconsin. He, he may not have even won Ohio and Pennsylvania. He definitely, those last few electoral votes that put him over the top, he didn't win those states. Mm-hmm. Those states were rigged. That, that flies in the face of of the democracy. It's, I mean, voting is the one thing that separates us from the savages. You know, one man, one vote. He's reinvented corruption in a way that this country's not even prepared for. I really believe that he will uh, lose, and I think that's the only way
0: that he can be removed. I, I, I don't. I think, like, we're too far down the line to impeach him. Or in, I, I like what you're saying, but he needs to lose in front of people. That, that to me, is, like, the the best defeat.
3: Mm. Well, I mean, there's an awful lot of very bright, very wonderful, beautiful people who have been sitting here, you know, hijacked by this guy who have no idea what to do. I'm one of them. You know, I can be as outrageous as I like, but if, unless I can, you know affect a remedy, then I'm just a fucking voice in the wilderness.
0: Well, I I think your voice has been uh, put to good use online. I've been following you, I, and I appreciate that with the platform you have, uh, you are vocal about it, and I think that does matter. I mean, whatever, maybe it's just a little tiny drop, but I think that drop does matter. Mm. Unconvinced?
3: I'm skeptical. Yeah. You know, I've been doing it a long time, and... I'm not seeing the needle move um, nearly as much as it it should commensurate with how outrageously illicit all of this shit is.
0: You know, you said uh, in an interview um, a year ago, and this is sort of a natural segue into into film in a lot of ways, about uh, the death of the old guard, which you were talking about in politics. You also described the state of movies in that way. Where you're finding with your new production company that uh, the sort of middle of cinema, the sort of serious drama films about people, uh, the market for that has bottomed
3: out. Well, the good news is, is that, you know, by 2050, the species will be wiped out. So it really won't, doesn't matter Great. what I think about cinema.
0: You know what? I have a next question. We can just move on.
3: Um, <laughs> I mean, one sign after another that you know we we're, we're on track to be the Roman Empire you know where, where we, we, we did our 200 and some odd years mm. and now it's just we're, we're gonna eat ourselves through excess and uh, taking our eye off the ball of what's truly precious and what's truly important and what's truly beautiful you know in in exchange for an iPhone 10, you know or uh, an iPad, pro or anything else that makes you bury your fucking head in a world that does you fucking no good. Because all that information that people are gathering is making them just more anxious and stressed out. Mm. And nobody's ever being reminded of, of the things that culture was originally designed to do, which is to not anesthetize you. It's the opposite. I mean, you know, The movies that the big studios are doing are designed to just completely distract you and anesthetize you by inviting you into worlds that don't exist, that have zero to do with the human condition. And cinema, like most great culture, was invented in order for us to explore all of the aspects of ourselves, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, and everything in between, the the righteous, the sanctimonious, the... The corrupt, the violent, the the loving—you know—all of that, those things that you know, make up the network that 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 exists in all humanity. The function of art is to is to show you an experience where you walk out going, "Oh, I'm not the only one that feels this way.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Holy shit, I'm part of a greater um, collective consciousness that." Makes me feel okay about how, how the fact that that things might turn out okay for me, you know. That's catharsis, and that's what culture was meant to do. And the only way the the, the way into that is by shining a light on things that are true, like you know. And Truffaut said, "What is cinema? Cinema is truth twenty four frames a minute. Uh, a second. Second. Sorry, man." No, I was, I, I was doing. I was caught up in the metric system because was it was true was I, was, Truffaut, you I know? was gonna correct you, but I figured you figured. I out. corrected myself. You got it. But you know, stay close because okay. you never. I'm gonna fuck I, up again. And
0: I'm certain of it. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't
3: take you long. The, the The further away it veers from being uplifting and being um, useful in terms of understanding that. There are things that are good, and there are things that are bad, and there are things that one should aspire to in terms of behavior and and um, ideology and things, and our great culture begs us to examine those things, and um, that used to be what all of cinema was. The greatest talent in the world has all come together to work in cinema, be it Lighting cameraman or or production designers or composers of amazing, you know, majestic music scores. Mm -hmm. Filmmakers who've, you know, invented a whole pictorial way of shining a light on the human condition. Actors who are so involved in, you know, immersing themselves into the behavior of what you're watching that you actually think that these people really exist when they're nothing but characterizations of some writer's imagination. It's a glorious thing when it's done well. And it's been cheapened and bastardized. And, you know, my problem is is that I'm old enough to have seen it when it was still glorious.
0: Why is that a problem?
3: It's a problem because when I try to explain this excitement to, say, my kids, who don't have any of that frame of reference, Mm. they look at me like I'm, you know, like one step out of a mental institution like what the fuck are you talking about right. dad do you try to show them films i don't try to do anything to them anymore no you're done with it i'm done with it you never you know? showed him
0: like ace in the hole and said this is
3: it turns out my son is starting to, to to um discover these things on his own but i remember sitting next to my dad that's where i learned how to love all these things mm. and he would just i would just look in his eyes and see tears and look in his eyes and see mm. Excitement and look in his eyes and see joy from watching Gable and Errol Flynn and Jimmy Cagney and, and Bogey and Bob Mitchum and 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 Cary Grant and William Powell and and knowing the difference between a John Ford movie and a, a, a and a George Stevens movie mm. and my father, my father fixed televisions for Christ's sake, but there was something that he was able to lose himself in in watching these great filmmakers strut their stuff and give him a real kind of, like, antidote to getting banged around all day, you know, and what he needed to do to make a living. Go home at night, you know, watch The Adventures of Robin Hood or uh, Casablanca,
4: Mm.
3: and I'm good now, man. I'm good. (laughs) It's a fucking good, good... It's a good night, it's a good life you know so but um, you and I there's a power are, to that you and, and i are glory. 40
0: years apart and i had a very similar experience with my parents watching bogart or 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 watching uh, for my dad my dad loved watching scorsese films you know and i watched my dad cry during raging bull i watched my mom cry during fanny and alexander i mean We are, although different generations, I don't think it's all gone. I I hate to be so... Because I'm I'm also... I want to direct and I want to make and to be cynical about it. I'm not saying you are, but to be cynical about it, it seems like the easy answer to me. But I think your career is a testament to wanting to make stuff that matters and that means something and that is a reflection of the human experience. And I think there are enough people of my generation however bastardized and desensitized we may be that also want that i don't want to throw it all the way in the trash can yet is, is kind of what i'm saying
3: well you got to show me man because if you know I, I think you alluded to the fact that you read my book mm-hmm. and you know the last two chapters of that shit is like before you can build anything new you're gonna have to tear every fucking thing down and when you're willing to tear everything down and say, enough of this bullshit, enough of these Marvel fucking movies, enough of these men in fucking spandex, and just say, I'm not going that direction, no matter mm-hmm. how much they pay me, no matter how easy they're gonna make my life, then now we're talking. I've tried to do it over the last six years with Wing of the Prayer, the, my production company, and I've had my heart broken, because I'll make a, a film and I've made a couple of stinkers, but I also made a couple of cool ones.
0: Do you know when they're stinkers?
3: Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I know when they're stinkers and I, and I know how they got to be stinkers because <laughs> you, you know I was there for all the sausage making you mm-hmm. know from the getting a first time filmmaker who you think is ready and find out that he's not and and having to raise the money and find out who you're in bed with and you know how um. Stinky their agendas are, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of ways to go wrong when you're when you're building something that has as many moving parts as a movie. I made a few good ones that no one saw because the the the, the, the system is not set up for anything. Small. I mean, occasionally something breaks through, like The Green Book breaks through. There's always one or two or three of those a year.
0: But even that wasn't that small. I think the budget was 25, 30 million.
3: Well, there you go. I mean, so yeah. I mean, I'm making movies that are a million two, a million five, Mm -hmm. two, three. But there's nothing but love on the screen and, you know, witticism, I think. And it is as if they were never made at the end of the day because there's just no, the, the marketplace has shifted away from having those things have any value. Now, like, I made a movie called Asher. Mm-hmm. That movie, if it was made in, in the 60s, late 60s, or, or all throughout the 70s, would have had a nice budget.
0: Yeah. I thought that was interesting. I, I saw it. It reminded me of uh, kind of like an Arthur Penn Night Moves old 60s 70s kind of movies you know
3: but the companies that pick it up just dump it and they hope that you know a few people tune in on video on demand and but there's no advertising for it there's no word of mouth for it there's no there's no pride of ownership for it there's nothing other than hey let's just throw this out there and see what happens well fuck if you don't know mm-hmm. that something's playing you're not going to go see it
0: and and when they don't have love or pride behind it, I mean, aren't they also asking you to go out on the film's behalf and promote it?
3: It doesn't even matter. I mean, I, I you know, I spend my own money going out hiring a publicist for, you know, five times what I made to make the movie because I'm working for nothing. Why do you do that? Why do I do what?
0: Why do you hire someone to do that? To, to, to have to, someone... To
3: send me on talk shows? Yeah. Because there's nobody else... There's no other way to let the public know this even exists because the company that just you know, paid me pennies on the dollar to, to, to put it out for me is not doing anything mm. to promote the film. So it, it falls to me. So not only did I work for free to make the film because it was a labor of love, but now I'm actually spending my own money to try to whip a few hundred people into watching it
0: there's something about this and it's a conversation the people in that room and I have had about this show and it's I've had it about movies, which is people online are reluctant to engage with self promotion for whatever reason. It can be by you. It can be by Barry Jenkins. It can be by anyone who's doing well and making things that people like. I, I don't know what that is, but, but the public has a hard time with that on social media. And I can't tell you why.
3: No, I can't either. But but the, the, the fact of it is, when you need them, they're not there. Yeah. Um,
0: How does it make you feel?
3: Makes me feel cynical. It's like, okay, you, you don't mind me fighting your fights for you and, 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 and sticking my dick out and getting whacked over the head by, you know, 55% of, you know, the people who want my ass for saying what I say. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I ask you, hey, check this movie out. Yeah. It took me five years to fucking make my blood sweat and tears are in it and 125 people like it like the tweet and I go maybe that's I don't know I I can't I can't account for it or answer I and I'm not bitter about it it's just it's just an observation
0: It's confounding but,
3: but, I, it, but, but I, it's, I, I it's these kinds of observations point. that make you go how long do I want to keep doing this to just keep banging my head against the wall and spending you know, my, my own political capital and my own my own personal finances for the love of cinema, um, which may be why we've gotten to the state we've gotten to. Mm-hmm. The, you know, there used to be a bunch of us. Now there are a few of us, and pretty soon there'll be none of us who are even making these little films just for the, the sake of the fact that they're beautifully written. They have potential to be beautifully shot, and they have potential to be beautifully acted. And they have the potential to have an audience member walk out of the theater going, holy fuck, man. That was cool. You know? And that's that's what we're here to do. I mean, you know, whether you're a painter or a musician or a dancer, you know, if you're in the arts, you're here to move people. And if, if the system is insisting upon devaluing that as something that that is worth spending your time on. Then you're like Don Quixote, you know, you're you're just like you're fighting with the windmills, man.
0: Do you think your love Am I it? sounding really negative? No, you're well, yes.
3: Yes. I have to preface this at this point by saying I I have Preface
0: we're 30 minutes in.
3: You're ha- you, you you're talking to one of the happiest motherfuckers on the planet. Really? I have an incredibly blessed life. I have one of the greatest careers I could have ever imagined or dreamed of. All my dreams have come true, and everything that's happening to me right now is gravy. I personally have benefited Im- immensely from the gods that have taken an interest in, in, in giving me a beautiful life.
0: Do you think? The, I, thank you, uh, thank you. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to I go back to a time that I think is very pivotal in your life. Um, It's how you open your book, Easy Street. It's in 1969 in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Um, You are at the Berkshire uh, Theater Festival. Mm -hmm. You are finding, uh, I think, some love for acting. You are finding people who are like you who want to dedicate their life to performing. It seems like the first time that you felt that sense of camaraderie in your life, and then simultaneously with that joy comes uh, news about your father's passing. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to that time when you're looking back at it now. We're we're forty years removed, fifty years removed. Mm-hmm. What do you make of it?
3: I feel as though you know it's essential that we understand the things that molded us and the things that made us and the things that um, affected us in a way so that we figured out what we would fight for and what we would just give in to. But you're right, it was, it was this sort of perfect storm of, of, of things colliding that were very epiphanous and also profoundly sad. The, the ultimate effect of my dad's passing in my case, was a connector of the two because he taught me why uh, it's, it's cool to love movies. He taught me why it's cool to love Sinatra, Count Basie, Benny Goodman, Glenn Miller. You know, he taught me my whole aesthetic. He taught me why it was cool to go to Yankee Stadium and watch the greatest team who ever played in the 50s. And so everything, when he passed, in order for me to stay with him, my 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 way to affirm the fact that he was still with me was to just take on all of his his passions and all of his loves, and his sense of why the little guy matters. Because all of his movies, the movies that he really loved and cherished, were about why the little guy matters. You know, in, in a world of big machinery and big corporate you know, complacency. He taught me all that. And so while I'm um, finding this community and finding that I somehow felt as though this was the first place I ever kind of fit in because I was the least fucked up guy <laughs> that I was running into. Um, like Is that there true? Was so, yeah, there was so much neurosis everywhere I looked. There were so many people who were just so fucking, you know, misdirected and and needy and, and, and you know, and anesthetizing them I mean you know just everything you could possibly it all came out of this this most complex network of neuroses you've ever seen you
0: didn't have any of that
3: no not me I was beautiful I was I was perfect no I'm saying it was a, it was it was a, it, I fit perfectly into it mm. but I was not I mean I used to think I was the king of neuroses until I met people in the theater and I said this is my community right? This is where I get to feel normal. So that's happening. And then there's a passing of a torch that is a sort, of, sort of a quasi-spiritual man to, man teaching a man how to be a man, love for certain things that are very, very life-affirming, very, very beautiful, very joyous. Like listening to Sinatra sing, you, you, you should have seen the look on my old man's face. And we had... Every, I mean, I was born in 1950. So the greatest album ever made, which is I mean, "We Small Hours of the Morning," came out in what 52, 53. We had every Sinatra album the day it came out, and my dad made twelve thousand dollars a year. But somehow he found the money to get the the day and date release of every Sinatra album, and sometimes somehow he found the money to get the day "My Fair Lady" came out. Mm. The the the, the the Broadway, um, you know, recording, West Side Story, Carousel, all of it. That's Mu- what, that
0: what gave him joy.
3: Music man. And he, I would sit there and watch his face while he listened to this stuff. And I would go, wow. I didn't understand it yet. I just knew what it was doing to him and how happy it made him and how, how transformative it was for him. He was fueling me with, with an outlet for where to put this newfound position I was in of like, OK, you're in, a, you're in an expressive world. You know, what, is it, what does it look like aesthetically? And so that's been what's guided me all along, which is why I decided probably to start the book 19 years into my life. And then once we got through the chapter of him passing, I went back to the beginning, and, and and chapter two was, okay, I'm now one year old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm he's he's walking me as soon as I could walk to Yankee Stadium, which was like a, a forty five minute walk from our house.
0: When you're nineteen, and, and at this festival, you meet a, an actor, a man named Richard Lynch. I
3: hmm. just watched two nights ago in Scarecrow.
0: I've not seen this.
3: What? I haven't seen. You he, haven't seen Scarecrow? No, I haven't. It's Gene Hackman's favorite performance that he ever gave, and that's saying a lot because he gave a lot of great performances.
0: Okay, I need to add that. I need to add that. Yeah. You know, you describe yeah. this man as uh, someone who was rising, someone who was uh, seemed to be anointed, and going to be the next star in 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 movies. He was reluctant, and um had problems with drugs, and your job at the time was to make sure that he got to the theater and was not on, not drinking vodka and, and to perform. I, I, this person seems important to your life, and it seems like uh, an experience early on in your life where you got to see what this could look like if you do this, if you act a certain way. Is that right? Is that fair to characterize?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's very fair to be characterized that way. I mean, what Richard was to me was this very complex, very tragic figure, because he was he was uh, self medicating on on a, a gargantuan level. But you can see anybody who really looked in his eyes when he was pleading for me to go, come on, Ron, we stopped. Just one little stop on the way to the fucking theater to get there for a half hour to put his makeup on and be ready to do the show at 8. My job was to make sure he didn't stop in any liquor stores. And he got me to stop every fucking night. How did he do that? Because he was beautiful, and he needed it. He needed it to have the fucking balls to get on the stage. I may have been wrong by being you know, his enabler, but I went with him on that. And I would watch him perform in the shows, and he was able to do it. He was able to give a brilliant performance night after night, even though I knew he had a third of a bottle of vodka under his belt. If it got to the point where he wasn't able to go on, maybe I would have insisted that... But I was too weak. I was not a guy who you could should have given that job to, to, like, fucking, you know, be the keeper of a guy who was as powerful as Richard Lynch. But there was something incredibly painful about his existence, which is why he was self medicating. And I was, I was, I'll be damned if I was the guy that was going to prevent him from cushioning the pain. When you get anointed and you're about to become the next big thing, mm. and your first move is to set yourself on fire in Central Park and burn 90% of your skin which is what Richard did.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: We're talking about a guy who's a truly tragic figure because there was something about the pressure of finally getting all the things he dreamed of that freaked him out. So all of that was wrapped up in this very complex love for one of the very first professional actors I ever got a chance to hang around.
0: But was there any part of you that saw Richard and thought my God, the thing I want to devote my life to could push someone to that state of mind.
3: Mm. You no, know, of yeah, of course. I mean, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing, you know, um, navigating your way through this art form, which is also, you know, a business. You know, they're very, very difficult bedfellows, art and commerce. And if you're great at one thing, you're probably really shitty at the other. <laughs> But you're going to have to be forced to find a way to make those two things, you know, in sync with one another in order for you to have a long, productive life. And and then what I discovered um, in my late 30s when I had my very first bit of success is that when you start to make money and you're successful and you're in, and you're truly in the public eye, that's when it really gets hard. Because that's when it gets to be really easy to fuck up, and really easy to like, you know, burn bridges and and and, and blow friendships. And did you do that? Um, a little bit. Yeah i have a I have a I have a self destructive uh, tendency. Um, I I I never. <laughs> luckily, I never did it so that it was irreparable or. There was no coming back from it. But I watched people who did. I watched people who had everything and and fucking were determined to destroy it because they were so bent out of reality from the uh, aphrodisiac of power and fame and notoriety and having your face on covers and having all these new friends and having all this money in your account and being able to buy shit... You know, when you used to be a bartender working for TIPS or a cab driver, you know, mm-hmm. it's very complex when you start to get the most complex thing. I mean, failing is a lark compared to succeeding in show business. And those are, are those who are able to sustain themselves and have a long, you know, uh, and, you know, and have, have longevity and are able to continue to build on their success, those are the ones who have been through the trials by fire and have an ex- extraordinary uh, sense of um, self-awareness.
0: Can we look at a moment where I think you seem to have found some kind of success for a second? Sure.
1: And the winner is Ron Perlman.
2: In the book. Oh
4: my God. For as long as I've been watching these shows on television, I wondered why the long, boring thank you speeches. And now that I've got a bit of work in this industry, I realize why. It's because nobody gets up here for doing good work in this industry. People get up here when a lot of people do good work in this industry. Um, So with your kind indulgence, Thank you, Kim Lemaster and CBS for your faith. Tony Thomas and Paul Witt for your exquisite good taste and projects. To Linda Hamilton for your beauty without and within. To Rick Baker and Margaret Becerra for turning this into a romantic hero. <laughs> to my wife, Opal Stone, my mother, my daughter. E.M., my manager and the best network of family and friends anybody in this industry could ever have. And last but most, to Ron Koslow, out of whose imagination sprung Vincent, a character which I feel stands among the greatest in all of dramatic literature. I am truly blessed with good fortune. Thank you.
3: So you got a question? (laughs)
0: What do you make of that watching it now?
3: I always have problems uh, with moments like that, you know, watching them and going, Oh, what an asshole. I truly believe what I said. I mean, the, 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 the beauty of of cinema and television and, and what, what what we're describing here is the collaborative nature of it. An amalgamation. All these disparate um, endeavors have to come together in order for one moment to take place in a, in, in a series of 150 moments that make up a movie or 60 moments that make up a, a, a TV show. The amount of times that I've seen people do really good work and never get noticed because the movie fell short or the marketing didn't get the word out, you know. Like, you know, the guys you end up seeing up there didn't do the best job. They were surrounded by the best circumstances. That part of, of that acknowledgement, was true, then and is true now, mm. and that's 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 pretty beautiful endeavor.
0: You know something else you mentioned here. I have read a whole bunch of interviews where you describe, and even in your book, where you describe yourself. And um, at times, I think uh, you're disparaging. Of of your looks, especially in childhood,
3: mm-hmm. where are you at with this? I'm at peace. I'm I'm finally um, very very comfortable in my own skin, and very non judgmental about whether I'm good enough or right enough or. Um, These were concerns you had
0: uh, throughout the beginning of your career.
3: Yeah, and they were subjective. They were they had nothing to do with reality. I mean, I you know you realize I mean look back and on that footage. You know, when I said turning this into a romantic lead... I was very confused, to be honest with you. I'm seeing a guy that looks pretty good. That's but, pretty but handsome. I didn't, but I didn't feel real good. You didn't like,
0: think you were handsome then?
3: I didn't. And it wasn't until I started to hit my 40s that the I started taking pressure off myself and I started becoming more and more comfortable just being me and not as caught up in, in some sort of wiring must have gone wrong when i was very young that made me feel that way and i'm convinced of that now i don't know what it was and i'm i'm not that particularly interested in in going back and <laughs> figuring out and exercising it because it's been exercised it's been exercised by the fact that i i got to be old enough to watch it, all of it all that bullshit fall away mm. and you know to, to to start liking myself and be, be being comfortable enough with myself. But in the early going, I mean, I went from caveman to hunchback to beast to whatever. I mean, there, there was an, there was a lot of it. And I became known for it and became, you know, the only time I was considered for work was if you covered this shit up and turned it into something else. And the interesting poetic thing about that is that I needed it. I needed to have a, sh- a, a, a layer of artificial goop between me and the camera in order for me to disappear into the character. If I didn't have that mask, I was very self-conscious because I didn't... I was uncomfortable with me. And and how cool is it that I got a chance to be an actor under those circumstances because those are the only ways that I was comfortable enough to be an actor. Mm. Just at the moment where... I didn't need it anymore. I started getting more and more roles where I just got to be me and got to be play this face, you know? So that's one of the reasons why I consider myself so blessed is because somebody took me by the hand and said, okay, we're going to make this real easy for you. Mm. You know, for the first 15 years of your life, we're going to cover up your face so that you can be free enough to just play the motherfucker and not have to worry the fact that you're not good enough or you don't look good enough or you're... You know, and
0: But don't you think it did mess with your confidence?
3: Well, I'm talking about the fact that I had none. <laughs> you know, I mean, it led me to be an actor and then guided me through and ultimately got exercised.
0: You know, uh, something we missed in, in you being a teenager and, and a young 20s uh, actor in theater and, and then New York is that you have this summer with Al Pacino, and it is another person who had been anointed and selected to be a movie star. He was getting offers, but he was sort of hiding from them, and he was reluctant to engage with that. And uh, this is less about him and more about you. In your career, in the beginning, and then even now, what kind of actor did you want to be? Where did, where did you want to land?
3: Well, the, probably the most seminal performance for me personally was Charles Laden, Hunchback of Notre Dame, because here was clearly the physical manifestation of all of my internal perceptions, misperceptions, being the most gorgeous thing in the story. Just pristine character, huge heart, incredible generosity, incredible compassion. I posted a, a an Instagram sh- uh, the other day of Lawton in that makeup and said, "When I f- first realized that this was the most beautiful thing in the story, I became unchained." Mm. And you know, it, so um, it had a seminal effect on me watching that ugliness be that beautiful all all at once, and kind of like almost granted me permission, getting to play the beast. And and being able to say what I just said about that being my seminal moment, if there was ever a character that you know uh, was the manifestation of what I just said, it was it was the beast in Beauty and the Beast, which is what got me that award. Uh, you know, again, luck. I you know. I, you think it's I, luck? I couldn't have designed that. I couldn't have designed the fact that I was gonna ultimately have that platform to say. This guy is completely unacceptable physically, and yet he's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And I got it. I got it. And it gave me wealth, and it gave me notoriety, and it gave me that award, and, you know, it's like, holy shit, how lucky can you get?
0: When Guillermo del Toro wanted you for Hellboy, did you think that was luck?
3: Um, I thought it was too good to be true. My first reaction was, holy shit, that's, that's a beautiful sentiment. But it was quickly replaced by the fact you you know that nobody's going to give you the money to make this movie if you insist that I be the lead character, and I sang that refrain to him for seven years, not knowing that for seven years he he would you know go into meeting after meeting after meeting and say, well uh, uh, yes I like The Rock, yes I like Nicholas Cage yes yes, but no I have to make this with Ron Perlman, and I didn't know he was doing that because every time I said. Guillermo, I understand what you'd like to have happen, but we don't live in that world. You have to just make the fucking movie. It's too good a movie to not make. And I'll come on opening night and, and cheer you on and love what you've done, probably. And he goes, yes, yes, you're right. That's what I will do. And all the, all the while, he was lying to me. He was, mm-hmm. he was, you know, and he got it done. It took him seven years, but he got it done. I don't remember what your original question was, but... Did you think it was luck? No, in this case, it was just... I mean, del Toro, if you translate literally, it's like, of the bull, right? So there was a lot of bullheadedness in those meetings when, to finally pull that shit off, because that was, that was the impossible.
0: You know, you've been asked, uh, in the aftermath of the new Hellboy film... Which I didn't see. Nor did I. You've been asked a lot about it and I and I don't really want to ask the same thing of what do you make of it. Um instead, you know, just as someone who obviously has so much love for the series and for Guillermo and for what it did to your career, which was I think an incredible thing. I think you mm-hmm. would agree with that. It totally changed my life. Uh just seeing it come out and seeing it not with you, how did you handle that?
3: Completely didn't care. Really? You didn't care? Completely. I mean, I, it was... Can I
0: tell a, you? I think I would
3: have. You would have cared? Yeah,
0: I probably, I probably at least would have said some, like, unkind things. You could be a better person than I am,
3: though. No, no, it's not that. I mean, i am I'm not sure how much I'm at liberty to say, but it could have been me in that incarnation of it. I had my chance to say yes and be that and be part of that experiment. But um, number one, there's no Hellboy without Guillermo del Toro. There's no Ron Perlman in Hellboy without Guillermo del Toro. And there's no need for a guy who's 67 years old, who they come to to do a rebooted version of Hellboy, to want to say anything but, well, if you're able to get Guillermo and do the third and final film in the trilogy. I'll work for half price. Well, that was a lie. But, uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I'll be there. And they said, no, we we just, you know, the elements are not leaning that way. And I said, well, those are the only circumstances that I'm willing to go put the makeup on again. And when it was going to be a, a different thing, I said, I've made my peace. I have no, I feel no, 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 not one uh, iota of um, proprietary, like, this got to be me, my way or the highway. You know, I just said, okay, good luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, completely without feeling about it. Because I did my thing. Very proud of the two films. Would love to have finished the trilogy, as the entire world knows, because I've made no bones about that. Still would love to finish the trilogy, because I know what Guillermo has in mind for how it resolves with these two twins being born, and which one is going to look like her, and which one is going to look like me, and which is the good one, which is the bad one. You know, you can do the math knowing, you know, how Guillermo feels about these issues and knowing that, you know, that there's there's a reckoning coming because the oracle says Hellboy only comes onto the earth to destroy mankind. And what wins out? Is it nature or nurture? And it's going to be the ultimate Nietzschean struggle between nature and nurture is how the third film would have played out it would have been fucking epic and it would have been well worth whatever pains it took to get it done but it was not to be so anything short of that was of no interest to me do you think it'll happen i think it still could i think it still could. i think anything's possible I mean, look at the. I mean, how many versions of Charlie's Angels are we going to fucking see before they before they say that's enough?
0: I think we're on Spider Man ten at this point. Yeah, anything. I mean, you know, if
3: somebody thinks there's money in it, fuck yeah.
0: Um, We started this conversation a a little bit pessimistic about politics, and then we were a little bit pessimistic about movies. Um, But I want to. I want to know for you. Uh, with whatever is left, however long you want to keep fighting this fight, which you mentioned that you're fatigued by, what would you like to do? What would you like to do with your company? What would you like to do as an artist?
3: Well, the good news is, is that it hasn't, it hasn't taken the wind out of my sails at all. What I was describing to you was frustration, not fatigue. People still have a great appetite for great storytelling, so it moved to television. Like, I, you know, the last three TV series I did were fucking awesome. You know, amazing writing, great humanity, really edgy, you know, dangerous, uh, interesting, nuanced, all the things that cinema used to be mm. back in the 60s and 70s and a little bit in the 80s. The There are no more Sam Goldwins or, you know, Harry Cohn, you know, there are those mm-hmm. guys. There are no more Jack Warners, you know. You know, there are... Michael
0: Barker's all right.
3: There are CEOs.
0: Sony Picture Classics, they do some things.
3: Well, no, but that's that's an art house company. Yeah. I mean, they have a different mandate. And Fox Searchlight does, still does ex- exquisite projects. Yeah. And I just saw a movie that's well worth recommending called The Last Black Man in San Francisco.
0: My friend made this movie. I'm, I'm glad you liked it.
3: So there's still things that are that are squeaking through. But, the, but in, in terms of the, the, the frequency of that, it's, it's, that's what's... But te- television has picked up the mantle, and, and, and people are watching television in historic numbers. I mean, the amount of product that's coming through, either through network, cable, or streaming, is mind-boggling. There's mm-hmm. like 600 shows on, on TV now. And a lot of them are really great, and a lot of them are kind of like feel like a Friedkin movie, or or a Brian De Palma movie, or you know, they feel like the shit that that made me want to start the company to begin with. So it's not as if it's not there; it's just not um, where it used to be. But you know, being kind of like at a place where legacy is um, part of the conversation, you know. And, I'm way past the conventional age to retire. So everything I do now is purely, you know, fun and gravy. It's okay for me to, to to battle some windmills and say, well, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. We can still make beautiful cinema. And I'll continue to do that. I mean, we have five or six things, small things in production right now, pre-production. And another five or six things we're segueing to like $40 million movies. And I love producing. I really love the process of the moment you read a script and you go, holy shit, I got to work on this. To you know, this is what the, the poster is going to look like and this is how many screens it's going to play, you know, and having something to do with every decision in the middle. So I'll never stop.
0: Speaking of never stopping, till the end of your father's life, he played music, mm-hmm. and uh, I want to read a passage here okay. from uh, your book, which everyone should read. Thank you. My mom told me it was no different at the Tammament, with Dad getting up on stage each night and doing these crowd-awing drum solos. On that final night, he had the house on its feet as he moved the drumsticks like magic wands in his hands until the ultimate note. Near the finale, his stick hit the cymbal in the sweetest of tones. And then, suddenly, he was on the ground. According to my mom and the coroner's report, he was dead before he hit the floor. Victim of a massive coronary. Is that how you want to go out?
3: Yeah, oh, doing what I love? I mean, that's the most poetic death. Um. How, here's how I want to go out. I want to die sometime between action and cut. I want it to be about 87% through the end of the movie so that it fucks up the production in such a way so that they can't go back and reshoot the whole thing. But they haven't finished it yet either. Mm-hmm. And I want all those motherfuckers to go, with that prick. <laughs> That's how I want to go out, baby. I like that they have to rework the whole movie now <laughs> in the
0: edit. Well, we can't recast him because he was the main. And court. he's eighty-seven percent through. There's no going back. Um, Ron Perlman, it has been an absolute joy, and uh, I hope you get that for you.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: to talk easy special thanks this week to ron perlman to learn more about him and our show you can visit our site at talkeasypod.com. we're also available to stream on spotify soundcloud itunes stitcher wherever you get your podcast and this show talk easy is executive produced by david chen graphics by ian jones illustrations by krishna shenoy our intern is ghani Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our show was taped at York Recording in Highland Park by Tim Moore. Our associate producer is Ian Chang. Our producer is Neil Innes. I'm San Fracoso. We are off next Sunday with the 4th of July. I hope everyone listening uh, celebrates well. And uh, I'll see you back here after that. Have a good week, everyone.